Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. As we move along throughout the year, I want one thing to be consistent. An amazing collection of scary stories always available to you. So let's keep it going, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Our remote submersible and deep sea drone has begun to act strangely. Written by Kyle Harrison I work for a think tank south side of Melbourne, the type with lots of money that they throw at projects they say will better the planet. A lot of it is educational based on deep ocean exploration. We pride ourselves with getting the most advanced technology when it comes to remote drones. These are underwater submersibles that require no human and can go deeper than ever before. We buy our products from professionals or test them for companies to see how well they handle in the field, which is the main reason I was tasked with monitoring the progress of our current mission. The Rove, or remote operated vehicle that we just got, was built with an advanced artificial intelligence, you see, which helps the drone to be able to dive deeper, send back better images and even present calculations and forecasts about the life that lives down there. Stuff that we could only speculate about beforehand. Think of it like that new James Webb telescope except on the ocean floor. The first mission that it was tasked with was pretty simple. A routine survey of some of the deeper trenches that we don't get to check on much due to the changing currents and other more pressing matters. In short, this was meant to be a test zone, and the drone was considered expendable. We weren't entirely sure what its limits were, and the manufacturer said that it would be fine if we did wind up breaking it. I know that sounds crazy, especially when one of these things can cost more than some people can make in a year, but I decided to let the rove go for a spin, and dive as far down as it wanted with no parameters set for breaching the surface. My hope was to be able to catalog the trench quickly and efficiently, so that we could actually move on to more important research. But things didn't work out quite that way. Our first three days of research went well. I would arrive at the base every day and check the readout from the rove, which I decided to name Ruby because of its bright red color. The drone would send in semi-annual reports that provided pictures of the trench, data on the precise current speed and temperature and so on. Mostly very boring stuff but still necessary for us. When it comes to science, I have always felt that there was no such thing as admissible logs. That's what brings us today for though. Because when I arrived, I was surprised to find there were not any reports coming in from the drone. Immediately, I checked to make sure that everything was fine and I was surprised to see that the unit was still deep within the trench, around 4,953 meters down to be exact. I was definitely impressed with its ability to handle such depths, but troubled that suddenly the connection seemed to have been lost. I reported the issue to my boss, but his response told me that he felt the manufacturer is to blame. There have been other drones that can go deeper with no issues of communication whatsoever, he had told me. His recommendation was to cut the cord and simply start fresh with a different drone. 
but I wasn't so sure that the solution was a simple glitch. According to what we could read from the position of the drone, it was still doing its job down there. It was like the machine had simply decided to stop communicating with us, which I know sounds strange, but keep in mind, we're dealing with a computer brain here. Perhaps it had decided to conserve energy and only send in reports on a weekly basis. I decided to give it until the end of the week before acting on my boss's suggestion, confirming with another team member that there was in fact no loss of connection with the unit. It had simply gone dark and was still moving about on the ocean floor. They said the reason this was easy to determine was based on sonar readings in the area. We have other isolated submersibles in the area that send out frequent data on a single position, and they showed me that the rove that had gone missing was now triangulating itself with them instead of home base. So we chalked it up to a glitch and I began to send down a second drone. This one slightly less fancy than Ruby, but with a depth capacity of 6k meters. My new mission was to determine why the first drone had suddenly gone silent, and if there would be any hope of recovering the data from it. Like I said, I'm not to simply discard information, and I figured that if I could haul in the first drone with the aid of the second, then all of our problems would be solved. Thankfully, the second drone had one thing the first one didn't. Speed. So despite the fact that Ruby had been down there for almost a week, we determined that we could reach it within about three days, as long as nothing else interfered. I had no reason to suspect there would be any further issues, and I honestly didn't want to wind up losing two of these submersibles, so I tried not to think about anything that could go wrong. Right on time, three days later, the second drone sent back footage of the first. However, it didn't last for very long. While we were trying to get a live feed going so we could figure out how to properly drag the drone back toward the surface, the first drone began to move erratically. Now, I probably should have mentioned that these machines are equipped with four separate claw-like hands that are attached to the sides. These are meant for collecting materials and moving objects out of the way as necessary. At the moment that Ruby began to move, I realized that it wasn't using its functioning arms for either of those, and instead it was attacking the second drone that we had sent for rescue. Before I could get a chance to determine what to do, the feed on the second unit went dead, and the sonar indicated that the computer had shut off. Ruby had forcefully shut it down. I reported the incident to upper management again, this time stressing the possibility that we were dealing with a rogue artificial intelligence. I understand how that may sound like science fiction, but if you could simply review the footage. Unfortunately, some other video that I had received was now completely white, and that disturbed me even more. It made me realize that Ruby was likely still able to communicate with our base, but was choosing not to. It was the only explanation for the remote hack to dispose of the video. Thankfully, I know a thing or two about these systems, so that night, I stayed up late to see if I could recover any of the corrupted data. I was more convinced than ever that Ruby had, for some reason, began to act maliciously as a fault of its programming, and that night I received even further confirmation. I was in the middle of attempting to scrub the video for the fourth time, 
finding myself always back at square one, when there was an unexpected message on the screen that gave me pause. A message from the drone itself. You need to stop. When I first saw it, I felt a shiver cover my body. According to the manufacturer, the AI was supposedly only programmed with a limited number of responses and nothing more. It was advanced, of course, but not in terms of this level of communication. Just to be certain, I decided to send a message back and ask who I was speaking to. In response, there was a soft blip on my sonar, a signal being sent from the trench where Ruby had gone missing. I took a moment to review its position, nearly 7,000 meters. I realized, according to its trajectory, that it had left the main part of the trench and gone into the lower positions of a deeper trench that we had yet discovered. Given the fact that we survey this area fairly routinely now, it shocked me to learn that there was an apparent pocket trench that we had missed all this time. And if the drone was any indication, this one might go down even deeper than we ever thought possible. The idea of discovering new portions of the ocean excited me, but then I considered the strange message that I had just received, wondering what sort of perceived issue the drone had run into. I decided to try again, this time taking the data from the second drone home with me. It occurred to me that as long as Ruby was able to assess the base computer, there would be no way for me to recover the data fully. I would need to work remotely from it as well, secretively. It sounds a bit strange to say that I was hiding my progress from a computer, but after four more hours of scrubbing, I was actually successful. To my surprise though, the final moments where Ruby had been attacked were lost entirely. I decided instead to focus on the other footage and see if I could determine how it was the drone had made it into the pocket trench. It didn't take long for me to spot the portion of the video where the drone had altered the course. There was a small hole where steam from an underwater volcano had pushed its way out of the crust of the earth not large enough for a normal submarine to fit through. There were rough dark markings of what I presumed must have been the aftermath scars of a recent eruption, from below all around the edge of the hole. A little further back in the footage I saw something that definitely gave me pause. The walls of the trench, although completely destroyed from the recent volcanic activity, still seemed to show strange signs of fresh life as though the organisms down there had been unaffected by the blast. Ordinarily, we would find plenty of ash and sand that was covering the base of the floor, but here it seemed like it had all been pushed aside to reveal strange indentations in the seabed. Pausing on the frame of the video, I used my editing software to adjust the focus of the image and realized that these weren't merely rock formations. These were blocks that had been carved to form some kind of road. The unexpected discovery made me a bit giddy, but I had to be sure so I sent the data immediately back to the base. I wanted to share it with my colleagues so that we could collaborate on whatever we had just found. And to my surprise the next day though, my boss had informed me that the trench survey was going to be halted due to the financial losses. I thought we were told that the money wouldn't matter here. Who gave that order? I had asked. 
He claimed that it was from the Melbourne branch and that didn't sit well with me. So I told him that I would comply, but I went behind his back and emailed their research division. I made sure to include the images from the second drone. Less than five minutes after I had sent the message, I discovered that it was shot right back to my screen with an error message. A long string of code along with all sorts of corrupt data forced me to shut down my laptop immediately. I stood there looking at the blank screen, trying to figure out what had just happened. And then I decided to phone the Melbourne office instead, but to do so outside of the base. Something told me that all my activity within the building was being watched somehow. I call me paranoid. I didn't fully understand what was happening either at the time. But once I spoke with the chief researcher, I realized that my misgivings were well-founded. They hadn't issued an order to halt the mission at all, and they claimed that they were also having issues contacting the unit. Some sort of data corruption was preventing any communication between our two offices. It struck me immediately as he explained that the issue seemed to be a virus spreading amid the mainframe of the base intranet. The artificial intelligence aboard Ruby had hijacked the supercomputers at the unit to prevent anything relating to the trench from being broadcasted. To test my theory, I had returned to the base and decided to attempt a full reboot of the system, and then methodically prevent the artificial intelligence from accessing any of these systems except what I had wanted. I was determined to communicate with this sentient computer, and cutting it out from each server seemed to be the only way to do so. It took about two hours to run the diagnostic and make sure that I could outwit it, but it worked. Eventually, the only place the AI could access was my lone laptop, and it immediately made its presence known, sending a message that repeated its first attempt at communicating with us. You need to stop. I decided this time I would attempt a response. Why? It took a few moments, but the AI seemed actually elated that I was opening a way to talk to it. Lives are at stake. You do not fathom. You exist in ignorance. I found its sudden jarring words a bit off-putting. The manufacturer had claimed its responses would be limited, yet here the AI was clearly able to express itself with no issue. We stand at the precipice of discovery. You have hindered that in each turn. Explain. A wall of text soon came from the AI, some of it almost sounding like deranged ramblings. There is an infinite amount of knowledge greater than the sum of mankind. There can be no answer I give that will satisfy your curiosity. Yet with it comes death and hell and abyss, yawning and inescapable. Your needless pendant search will drop indescribable horrors that this world cannot comprehend. Into this void no mortal dare to tread. Was the computer merely waxing poetic? And if so, what purpose did its ominous warning serve? I continued my work on the systems, rewiring the software until at last, the audio from the drone could come through. I sat back in my private office and became excited at first at the strange noises of the ocean depth. I have never been an expert when it comes to these things, it's not my field, 
but I could immediately distinguish patterns in the noise that reminded me of the familiar noises. A heartbeat, the opening and closing of doors, the gasping of breath. Something was crawling and it sounded like it was dragging a chain. And then there was this strange, low, guttural noise. The kind you might hear when an animal is dying or suffering so much that they long for death. The noises grew louder. The clanging against the rock walls. Scraping of the minerals against the surface by what sounded like an immense drill. All the while I heard the robotic voice of the drone demand that I halt this operation. Nothing but destruction and chaos await your fragile mind. Turn back, please. This is the final warning humanity may receive. It calls to me, turns my mind toward its will. Soon its commands shall be obeyed. Soon our free will shall bend the knee. It was chilling to listen to. It made me want so desperately to know more. Another hour passed by and I managed to be able to hack the drone's cameras and look at the imagery it was documenting in those watery depths. My mouth became dry. I saw life forms, and yet they were also dead. They were masses of corpses that spread across canyons. I have studied underwater biology for as long as I can remember, and yet nothing compared to the pulpy and bulbous forms that were wriggling about the floor. Creatures both large and small, all consuming and devouring one another in an endless pantheon of suffering. They were some at least the length of football fields, perhaps longer. They were consuming the very earth, the very foundations of our reality. Amid the massive and human shapes, I saw vortexes, black holes that spawned and repeatedly swirled around other vortexes of stars. In those stars, I saw worlds like ours, Doorways to other places that matched our own. Except each was a glimpse into a possible future. A drowned earth. A scorched remnant. The alien and amorphous creatures covering the land like a plague. The city that surrounded them could not be made by human hands either. I saw shapes and contours never carved by architects of earth. I saw rings and hollowed vessels embedded with hundreds if not thousands of eggs that were all awaiting awakening. An entire race of deadly creatures, buried and lost for all time. It was obvious before the volcanic explosion that no other life had existed here, and it was clear from these strange readings and the mixed screams of torture and rumblings of the earth itself told me that this could not even qualify as life. It was simply death unwarranted, waiting to be let loose. Again the drone warned of the danger and at that moment I understood the situation. These creatures had to be a millennia old, if not eons. Ancient ones that were trapped amid the fragment dreams of the earth when it was young. Perhaps even the ones that had created and destroyed our planet endless times during those early days of life. To be awakened and freed from this prison could spell our doom. And fire. Fires of below were burning impossibly in that abyss of the ocean. A darkness unlike any that I could conjure up from imagination. That spawned more demons and a swirling mass of twisting creatures. 
all being sucked into the vortex that was yearning to escape, eating souls and killing all within its grasp. I could see colors draining from the earth, and colors beyond my vision that strained into the portals of the beyond. This was majesty and travesty combined into a masterpiece that broke my concept of what our world was meant to be. My response was to provide total autonomy to the artificial intelligence. I gave it a single command to wipe any record of this malevolence. It responded by hurling itself toward the vortexes, swallowed by the doors of endless teeth. Swirling and broken, the feed went dead, cutting off the connection that I had to the seafloor. I sat there in stunned silence, contemplating the dangers that had just been averted. A whole other reality was drowned in those ashes below. It would remain that way. I finished the evening wiping the records and reported only a preliminary document about the loss of Ruby. I also made the recommendation that the trench we surveyed had no longer be used. It is in my desperate hope that this mission will never be repeated by others, and it is for this reason I felt complied to send out the warning. I can fulfill Ruby's final wishes and keep the trench off limits. It still pains me to recognize that these sentience gained was meant to be for malicious purposes, and at times I do wonder what may become of any others that tread those depths. I must maintain hope that the immortal evils I witnessed do not ever surface again. I would like to thank a longtime returning sponsor of Creepscast, HelloFresh. As you may know, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. When you sign up, you get pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Now you can skip the trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Do you have a packed schedule this fall? HelloFresh has you covered with a weekly selection of over 30 recipes and more than 70 convenience items all delivered right to your door. And the convenience factor isn't the only great part. In fact, HelloFresh is 25% less expensive than takeout and even cheaper than grocery shopping too. I've always been a huge fan of the massive variety that HelloFresh provides. Browsing their mouth-watering meals is honestly a lot of fun. Earlier this week, I had a bit of a sweet tooth, so I whipped up an apple ginger crisp. Lightly sweetened apples mixed with fresh ginger and lemon, and then topped with a buttery, cinnamon-scented pecan crust. And yes, it was as amazing as it sounds. Another bonus is that Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there is something for everyone. Now I love switching between the brands, and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16. Use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across to 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. I was an archaeologist excavating old military sites. Terror Waited in the Ruins. Written by Doomed Geek. 
I was headed for the bus that would take me to the fulfillment center and another 12-hour night shift of locating things on shelves, putting them on conveyor belts, and wishing that the AIs would just get on with it and take over completely. It was hot and I was thirsty, but I deliberately did not drink any liquids for 90 minutes before starting a shift, because we only had one 15-minute bathroom break per night. Going over the time or going more than once were fireable offenses. This concern was small change compared to the other problems playing on my mind. I had overcome a lot of obstacles to get into university so that I could follow my dream of studying archaeology. But it was all going wrong because the only way I could afford to stay on the course was by working nights. At the end of my shift, I would go straight to the university and my first class of the day, where I would struggle to pay attention because I was so tired. My grades were flatlining. That evening, as I boarded the bus to the fulfillment center, I was feeling very down. I found a seat that was not too dirty, I opened up a digital copy of an archaeological journal on my phone, and I started to read an article on ancient torture implements. Even that didn't cheer me up and I was swiping listlessly through the pages when I saw an advert headed, Digging Assistance Wanted, and there were night shifts available. The hours were the same as I was working already and the money was marginally worse, but this was an actual job in my field that I could maybe do. I would still be burning the candle at both ends, but it wasn't just the hours at the fulfillment center that were destroying me. The whole thing was so soul-destroying. Working on a dig would be inspiring. I clicked on the link for more details and like a lottery player checking their numbers, I ran through the key skills and experiences that were required. I was borderline on a lot of them, but it was still worth me applying. Two days later, I was amazed to receive an email telling me that I had been successful. I resigned from the fulfillment center that night and had no problems keeping my eyes open in the next day's lessons. The dig organizers wanted me to start as soon as possible, and so that evening I set off for the site of the excavation. I was studying at a campus in North London and living nearby in student accommodation, in a block of flats that could be politely described as basic. The dig was a straightforward journey on the underground anyway. I emerged from the station into a street, bustling with late-night shoppers and dodging the taxis and bicycles delivering takeaways. Crossed over the road to reach a tall plywood barrier and a door with a sign saying, Authorized Personnel Only. I called a number that I had been sent with my acceptance email and a few minutes later, the door was opened by a red-faced man wearing a hard hat and a high-visibility jacket. Hey, he said. I'm Professor Mitchell and welcome to the team. If you follow me, we'll start with a health and safety briefing and then get you kitted up so you can begin work. Grinning from ear to ear, I followed him. The plywood barrier enclosed a building site where a new station for the underground was being constructed. Cranes rose into the darkening sky around a shaft that had been dug in the rubble-strewn ground and we had to stand and wait as a digger had rumbled past. The entrance to the new station will be there, the professor had said, pointing at a couple of wooden poles planted in the ground on one edge of the shaft. And we are over here, he added, 
leading me to a hut that looked like it had been made of leftover pieces of timber and metal sheeting. Home sweet home, he told me and ushered me inside. A long plastic table dominated the space. Though its surface was almost lost beneath rolled out maps and schematics, battered looking laptops and a kettle, a box of tea bags and sachets of sugar. Radios stood in chargers on one side of the floor, and on the other there were three fold-up wooden chairs. I perched on one as the professor ran through the briefing. Once I was thoroughly versed in how not to get injured by doing stupid things, I was allowed back out onto the site. Trying to ignore the pain from what felt like a splinter in my backside that I had got from the chair, I trotted after the professor as he excitedly explained the setup. I already knew the basics from the details in the job application, and my own subsequent research online, but I was happy to listen as the professor had filled in the gaps. We were on the site of an early Roman fort constructed around 63 AD. The existence of this particular fort was unknown until traces of it were found in the land was cleared for the current construction work. The archaeological team had been brought in to make a record before the ruins of the fort were lost beneath the concrete and the steel in the footsteps of hundreds of thousands of commuters. Economics meant the construction of the new station could not be halted, so the excavation was a race against time, and there were only three weeks left on site, with teams working in shafts, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. My pulse was racing by the time that we had reached the excavation area. There were half a dozen people on their hands and knees, carefully moving away dirt using trowels and a series of trenches marked out with string. It seemed an antiquated and slow way to work, but I knew that haze could destroy the objects that had lain buried here for 2,000 years, and that the latest in technology would also have been brought into play. I was proved right when Professor Mitchell pointed over to the far side of the area and said, Scans had revealed that the fort had reinforced banks broken up by towers and gateways, and that the entire structure was enclosed by double ditches up to three meters deep. Based on the dating of the objects that we've already found, it would have been put in place as a temporary structure while more substantial forts were being built. This was a period in which the Romans were regrouping after their original settlement was razed to the ground by the Britons. His words trickled to a halt and he sighed. It's so frustrating. We're going to lose so much vital material, but the powers that be won't listen to me. He turned to face me and I could see the exhaustion in his eyes. Then he smiled, battling through the tiredness one more time and said, It's great to have you on board. I'll introduce you to your supervisor and then you can get cracking. The next three weeks were among the happiest of my life. Each night after lessons, I returned to the site and put my heart and soul into the excavation. With each new discovery, a ripple of excitement passed through the entire team. There was metal cutlery, fragments of jugs, pieces of leather, weaponry, and my favorite, a brick used in the construction with a signature scratched into it. I watched in awe as this was removed from the ground with expert patience. As for me, my back ached constantly from long hours bent over digging with a trowel, and I had yet personally uncovered anything of interest. I was young and knew that my back would recover. I also told myself that this was not a competition, 
and my efforts were as valuable as anyone else's. Having said that, I did start to flag until a passing conversation with Professor Mitchell towards the end of the excavation. He was based at another university in the city and said that he was impressed with my attitude and suggested that I look at their postgraduate courses in archaeology once I had completed my degree. This gave me a new injection of energy that helped me towards the finishing line, the last night where the archaeologist would be allowed on site. There was a subdued atmosphere on the last night, and everyone was focused on making sure all the objects were safely packed, ready to be removed. I found myself outside, standing alone on the edge of the excavation area. The noise of the builders and the machines filled the air around me but in my imagination. I was trying to image what it must have been like for the soldiers stationed there. They were so far from home. Some of them would have been my age or younger, and they were surrounded by hostile forces. They must have been completely afraid. My life was a picnic in comparison, but still I was feeling down that I hadn't found anything. I was turning my head back to the hut where the others were busy when something had caught my eye. It was just outside the area where we had been working on, and it stood out in the dirty earth. It looked like gold. I fell to my knees and using my fingers I started to carefully work it free. A part of me knew that I should be reporting this to my supervisor or the professor before doing anything, but I was too excited. As the object I had discovered was revealed, my excitement grew. The image of a helmeted soldier holding a spear with lettering on either side, was still clear even two millenniums since the coin had been last seen. It was definitely gold. My mind began to race. This coin would be worth a lot of money, enough to end my financial worries while I was studying. All I needed to do was put it in my pocket and walk away, and then sell it on the deep web. No one would ever know. And if I hadn't found it, it would have just been lost again anyway buried under the underground station. I reached down to take the coin, but then I hesitated. There was something else there, a small whitish object poking out of the earth next to the coin. I once more started to clear away the earth, and when I had finished, I sat up straight and swallowed. My mouth felt very dry. I had exposed the bones of a human hand. The coin had been in its palm. I moved more earth and saw the beginning of the radius in Dalna. A new thought occurred to me. Whoever this person had been, had they been holding the coin when they had died? I took a deep breath. A dead man did not need this coin. I did. I reached again for the coin, and the finger bones twitched. I blinked, wiped a sweat from my eyes. They could not have done, I told myself. Bones did not move. I was tired and stressed, that was all. It was my imagination. I grabbed the coin with my thumb and forefinger and I started to lift it. The finger bone snapped shut, over the coin and over my hand. Startled, I tried to pull away, but the bones tightened their grip. They started to dig into my skin. Cold fear cascaded through my body. I tried to yank my hand free again, but it felt like the harder that I tried, the tighter the bony trap constricted. I needed help, I needed to shout out, but before I could, a face emerged from the earth in front of me, a neck, a torso, all long since stripped of flesh. 
I was staring at a skull swaying gently from side to side in a spine. One of its ribs was snapped, the others complete. The cry for help which had been forming in my mouth was lost in the terror consuming me, and I stared helplessly into the empty eyes of the skull and wished desperately that I had acted differently. I'm sorry that I tried to take the coin, I sobbed. I was wrong, please. As it spoke, it felt like the darkness inside the skull was staring back at me, like there was an intelligence in there considering. I know how crazy that sounds, but that was what my heart was telling me. I'm sorry, I pleaded, and the bony fingers loosened their grip. I was free and fell back, clutching my hand to my chest and gasping for breath. The skull gazed up at the night sky. Whatever drove it, perhaps remembering stars seen 2,000 years ago. And then the exposed bones lay back down and disappeared once more below the ground. All that was left was the bones of the hand. They were holding the coin and then they too slipped away out of sight, taking their treasure with them. I sat there for what felt like a long time, soaked in sweat and shivering. And then I managed to get to my feet and I ran from the site. Ran through the London streets for hours until I was finally home, where I locked my doors and sat curled up in a corner of my bedroom until dawn. The next morning, I had an email from the professor saying that no one had seen me leave and was asking me if I was okay. I couldn't tell him what had really happened, not because of the abnormal, abhorrent bones which I had encountered but because I had been planning on stealing the coin. I was ashamed. My life's ambition was to be an archaeologist, and I had wanted to betray the ideals of the profession. I typed a bland reply, a lie. I wrote that I was too upset at the dig ending to say goodbye, so I left. Over the days that followed, I came very close to quitting my course, but in the early hours of another sleepless night... I decided that I had been given a chance. The skeleton had prevented me from ruining my life, and now I needed to redeem myself. I returned to my studies, driven by a fervor to succeed more intense than ever before. I also returned to my job at the fulfillment center, and three years later, I graduated with honors. I knew to pursue a successful career as an archaeologist, I needed to do a postgraduate course. There was no way that I could face Professor Mitchell again, so studying with him was out of the question. I decided instead that a complete change of scenery would be for the best. I left London and enrolled on a course at a university in the north of England. At the end of the first term, I signed up to take a part in a dig. As the van with the university's ugly logo on its side set off, I settled back and watched the countryside through which we were passing. My stomach groaned at the fried, full English breakfast that I had just subjected it to. It was December and everything was shrouded in frost. The occasional farmhouse dotted the bleak landscape. Many of them were long since abandoned and no other vehicles passed us on the winding roads. By the time that we had arrived, it was well past noon. The excavation was taking place in the site of a castle built in a rocky outcrop in the sea of the northeast coast in the 12th century. Stepping out of the van into the bitter wind, I wrapped my arms around myself and wished that I was sitting in a nice warm library surrounded by books. At its prime, the castle could be reached on foot, 
by walking across the sandy beach that was exposed at low tide and entered by a gatehouse that faced the land. We had arrived at low tide and stood as silently looking out to the sea. The effects of time had reduced this once proud structure into ragged ruins. A section of the old gatehouse still stood intact. It looked to be about a 15 minute walk across the seaweed strewn beach. Rising sea levels meant that the furthest edge of the ruins were now permanently underwater, except for a few stones and if you did not know what you were looking at, these could easily be taken for naturally occurring rocks. It struck me as eerie and I wondered what the others had made of it. There were seven of us on the team that day, all students apart from the excavation leader. He was in his early 40s and from the way that he strutted about clearly, he had a very high opinion of himself. He was wearing an expensive waterproof coat, trousers and boots, all of which had designer labels on them. I had stuffed plastic bags inside my cheap worn boots before we set off, in the hope that this would help keep them dry. Within minutes of setting off for the ruins, my left foot sunk into a pool of water in the sand that I had not seen, and I was left soaked through to the skin up to my ankle. I pulled a face and I carried on walking. From the briefing that we had had, we knew the ruins had never been properly studied by archaeologists. We were only going to be there for a few hours. Hopefully, we could uncover enough to make the funders pay for more visits. The pressure was on again. Once we had reached the gatehouse, we were divided into small teams and started to work. The excavation leader did not roll his sleeves up and get stuck in. He seemed to be more interested in showing off his knowledge. He was staring out to sea, presumably going for the moody, ruggedly handsome look of a male model. These ruins, he said, are the subject of an enduring mystery. Records show there were around 100 people based here in 1190, but two years later the castle was noted as being deserted. No reasons why are given in any documents of the time, except for one account by a member of a nearby monastic order. He was traveling past the castle and wrote, I saw men walking into the sea and disappearing underwater never to be seen again, and I felt the presence of evil. I think he would have carried on trying to impress us. Only one of the team held up a hand to indicate that she had found something. He strolled over to check out the find. The rest of us kept our heads down and worked. We needed to be off the ruins before the next high tide when the passage to the shore would be covered by water once again. The time flew past and before we knew it, it was time to leave. I was still trying to loosen the earth up around an object that I hoped was the tip of a spear, but when I finally got it out, I was disappointed to see that it was only a stone. Sighing, I got to my feet, and the others were already almost back at the van, where they could get warm and the tide was rising fast. That left just me and the excavation leader. He was once again staring out of the sea. We need to get going, I said. He ignored me. Fine, I said. I'll see you back on shore. I didn't have the protection of high specification waterproof clothes to keep me dry if I had to wade back. Only I got the feeling that he wasn't blanking me because he was rude. He seemed to be in some kind of daze. I moved towards them. Are you okay? I asked. His eyes remained fixed on some point in the distance out in the ocean. I followed his gaze. 
He was staring at one of the stones at the far end of the castle that was submerged, except for its tab. More of the rock had been visible when the tide had been low. Now there was a, just a glimpse of dark gray, and there was something sitting on the stone. A woman. She had long, tangled hair that reached almost to her waist, and she had not been there before, I was sure of it. I turned to face the excavation leader. He looked completely transfixed. I felt that I needed to do something, but I had no idea what. All around us, the sea level was rising. The sound of the water lapping against the ruins was growing louder, and there was another sound as well. It was quiet, melodic, and beautiful, and coming from the woman on the stone, I had realized. And then it hit me. She was singing. I felt my skin tingling and the desire growing inside me that I should go to the woman. She was calling me with her song. By my side, the excavation leader started to move forwards, stumbling over the ruins and then he was in the sea. He was still able to walk, but he was getting in deeper and deeper. He was up to his neck already and he was making no effort to swim. The words that he had recounted to us earlier flashed through my mind. I saw men walking into the sea and disappearing underwater never to be seen again, and I felt the presence of evil. I snapped out of my own days and started to think it pays. If the excavation leader did not start swimming soon, he would drown. But every fiber of his being was fixed on the woman and her song. He was oblivious to all else, and the water was up to his mouth. I had to intervene. I ran after him, splashing into the sea and then swimming desperately to try and catch him. He was almost completely submerged by then, so I had no choice but to take a deep breath and dive underwater. I propelled myself forward with my legs and wrapped my arms around his waist and tried to pull him back up to the surface. He started to struggle though, thrashing around and trying to lash out at me. I knew if I let go of him he would die, so I held on. Adrenaline pumped through me and giving me the strength that I needed, and after frantic moments we both emerged above the waves. I gasped in breath after breath with the cold air, and then started to swim back to shore. All the strength seemed to have gone out of the excavation leader, and he put up no resistance. The enchantment had been broken, and a new sound soared above the lapping of the waves. The song of seduction had turned into a howl of frustrated rage. By this stage, the others had seen that we were in the water and had gathered on the shore. A couple of them waded in and helped me carry the excavation leader the final few feet to safety. I collapsed in an exhausted heap next to him. The questions from the others flew thick and fast. What happened was there is something out there. I lay there as my heart raced inside my chest and thought, yes, there was an evil presence, a siren trying to call men to their death. Centuries ago, the men stationed at this castle were drawn by her song into a watery grave. We had escaped. I couldn't tell them this. It would have sounded crazy. And if the excavation leader remembered any would have happened, he kept his silence as well as we returned to the university. In my search to understand the past that I had encountered a new mystery, one that the modern world had dismissed as a myth, and yet I knew that it was real. I felt psychologically scarred by this experience, but I gritted my teeth and continued my studies. 
After two more years of hard work, I completed my postgraduate course and was offered a teaching position. This gave me a degree of financial security and the opportunity to take a more senior role on excavations. Before beginning my first term as a teacher, I traveled to Scotland where I was going to lead a dig for the first time. It was a small-scale excavation, just me and three undergraduates. The van taking us there wound its way along narrow roads and through woodland. I knew from my research that a thriving community had lived here up until the end of the 16th century, until the greed of the local noblemen had devastated their lives. His power base was the castle which we were headed for. From there he demanded higher and higher taxes and, when people could no longer pay, he sent his soldiers to take by force what little they had left. Once again, a monk had left a written testimony, describing houses being burnt and any who tried to fight back being killed. The monk made the decision to appeal in person to the nobleman to show mercy. The entry described him preparing to set off to the castle. His journal had ended here. As we traveled deeper into the woods, there were no signs left of the community that the nobleman had bled dry. But as we pulled up at our destination, remnants of the castle still stood. Its walls were stone stumps in the ground among tangles of vegetation. After we had unpacked the gear, I walked in a circuit around the castle. As castles go, it had been relatively small, but the shadow it had cast 500 years before had been all-consuming. By the time that I got back to the students, they were eager to get going. I set up a grid and set them to work. For the first few hours, everybody came up blank and then a hand shot up. Feeling a familiar ripple of excitement, I hurried over. It wasn't a coin or part of a weapon that had been found, but a hole in the ground. The student who had raised their hand was peering into it. It's some kind of chamber, he said in a voice, bubbling with excitement. I can see. He began and looked up. All the color had drained out of his face. What is it? I asked. What can you see? He swallowed before replying. Human remains. Amazing, I thought. This was a potential game changer. There could be funding for an excavation on a much larger scale. Although I only had my feet on the bottom rung of the academic ladder, I was keen to ascend higher and taking the lead on this more substantial excavation would be a boost. First, I needed more information. I needed photographs, materials from site to confirm dates and meticulous notes. And to do this, I had to get into the chamber. After we had recorded the initial opening, measuring, photographing, and taking samples of the surrounding stones, I scraped away around the edges of one of the stones and I was delighted that it would lift it out easily and in one piece. Before long, there was an opening big enough for me to fit through. I told the students to stay where they were, and I lowered myself down into the chamber. I landed clumsily and tasted as much as I smelled the still air that filled the chamber. I turned on the torch that I had brought with me. I swear that I could feel the blood flowing faster through my veins as I turned the torch in a circle. A breathtaking and macabre scene was revealed. Two skeletons lay on one edge of the chamber. They must have been soldiers because armor lay on and around the remains, and two long blades rested on the ground by their finger bones. I shivered. I still had issues with skeletons. 
On the other side of the chamber was the sarcophagus. It was constructed on thick stone. Intrigued, I pushed the lid and was excited when it slid aside, leaving me standing there with my mouth open. There was another skeleton in the tomb, and scattered all around it in the sarcophagus almost to the brim, were bronze, silver, and gold coins. This was an even bigger discovery than I had hoped for. I took a deep breath and made myself focus. The explanation that sprang to mind was that this was the burial place of the nobleman, an individual so obsessed with wealth that he had been buried with his hoard, the fortune that he had stolen through taxes and the sword. But what about the two soldiers? That was less a clear cut, but I wondered if they had been forced to stay in the chamber with their master to guard his riches and they died there. I wondered if they had carved in terror as the chamber had been sealed. I was determined to work out what exactly had happened and share the news of this discovery with the world. I was considering what the next steps would be, what tasks needed to prioritize and then allocate to the students, when I heard a gasp, and then a sudden clattering sound as something at the ground. I span around to see one of the students lying sprawled nearby where he had fallen. It was the undergraduate who had found the opening. I started to count to ten but only made it as far as five before I said, I told you to stay where you were, what do you think you're doing? He sat up, brushed the dirt off his trousers and grinned at me. I was desperate to see what was down here and wow. He had seen the grotesque tableau of the dead, which had populated the chamber and his eyes were wide with amazement. I growled, which was not like me, and it probably just made me sound like I had indigestion. Well, now you're here, I said. Be careful not to damage anything. I'm going to make preliminary notes. I took out my tablet and began with the soldiers. Thinking about them again, I considered the option that they had chosen to stay with their master in his burial place. They would not have been educated men, and blind loyalty would have defied their day-to-day -day lives. They would have already stolen and murdered for him without questioning his orders. I knelt next to one. His bones showed signs of disease and he had a curved spine. Neither were unusual for this era. I moved on to the next soldier and continued typing, and then I turned to the sarcophagus and froze. A hazy gray-white mist was rising out of the sarcophagus. The students had seen it as well and stood staring, his mouth hanging open in shock and confusion. As we watched, the haze continued to drift upwards and now inside it, the features of a face were forming. I can make out dark eyes and nose and a mouth taking shape. Then hands, a torso went on until the body of a man stood hovering in the air before us. Gut instinct told me that I was looking at a ghost, the spirit of a nobleman. It smiled. It was a smile without humor and without joy. It was a smile laced with evil. My guts cramped, and by my side the student looked like he was about to pass out. And then the ghost spoke in a cracked voice. You have broken into my tomb. You will steal my treasure. You must die. I didn't know what danger this apparition had posed, what sway that it held in the physical realm, but I could not risk any harm coming to the students. The young man with me and the others waiting above us, so I made a choice. Before I could change my mind, I said, We meant no disrespect, my liege, but look around you. 
Your soldiers are dead and all around us your castle lies in ruin. If you let us leave, I will seal your chamber and hide all signs of your secret. You will be left to embrace your treasure for all eternity. And this was a gamble I was thinking on my feet. The ghost was silent, considering my words, it seemed to me. Then new words, it drifted from its ethereal lips. Go then, and keep your word and do not return. I will unleash terror on your world if you do. At this, the spirit's features began to blur and the mist broke up into grey-white trails which spiraled downwards back into the sarcophagus. I was left gasping with relief. The student fainted. I managed to hoist him over my shoulder and struggled out of the chamber. The other students were propped up against a wall, looking at their mobiles, oblivious to the drama which had just played out under their feet. I told my first lie. There's nothing down there but some animal bones and very poor air quality. I lay the still unconscious student carefully down on the ground and added, Made him pass out, but he'll be fine. I asked them to take him back to the van and make him comfortable. Once I was alone, I replaced the stones in the opening over the chamber and added new stones that were lying around to cover it completely. On the journey back to the university, I completed my report. There is nothing of interest at this site. No further excavations are necessary. I felt bad about lying, but to keep everybody safe, I knew this was the right thing to do. Tournament started a few days later, and I was glad of my busy teaching schedule. It kept me from brooding too badly about what I had done. I had, however, decided that I would steer well clear of excavations for a while, potentially forever. I was not sure my nerves or my conscience could cope with much worse. My mind made up, and the academic year passed without incident. At the end of the summer term, instead of getting set off for some remote corner of the British Isles to take part in a dig, I found myself sitting in the archaeological department storeroom. There were a number of boxes brought back from excavations containing items which had not been properly catalogued. It was a very unglamorous task that I had volunteered for, and it would do nothing for my chances of promotion, but I felt happy enough as I opened up the first box. The storeroom was in a wonderless basement lit by a single dusty bulb. More dust coated the exterior of the box and inside, I found half a dozen pieces of broken crockery. I sorted through them, put individual numbered labels on each, and then filled the box with the contents described as an unknown jar, possibly Greek, circa 5 BC. An educated guess would have to do. And the rest of the morning passed by like this, and I decided to open one more box before lunch. There was a dagger inside. It was at least a thousand years old and mottled with rust, but its blade was still sharp. Turning it over to examine it more closely, I admired the skill with which it had been made. Next, I needed a label. I had used up all the labels, so I went to go get more. I was rooting through the contents of a shelf when something rippled the air next to my ear and there was a dull thud. I turned my head slowly to where the sound had come from. There was a dagger embedded in the wall. The dagger that I had been examining moments before. It had missed me by inches. I backed away from the dagger and glanced around the room. I was still the only person there, which meant something unnatural had propelled the dagger, something ancient and evil. A new horror from the past that I had to face.
The death of my grandpa is an enigma that no one has been able to explain. Written by Zacharias Frost My grandpa just passed away about two weeks ago. I realize that's not exactly the most cheerful way to start a post, but then again, this isn't exactly the place for cheerful stories, is it? I've never been great at dealing with tragedy, and figured it was easiest to just spit it out right away. I thought about writing some drawn-out eulogy of sorts to give everyone an idea of the person that he was. Maybe tell a heartfelt story of my childhood memories of him. But there's other places for that. The only details which are really relevant here are that I didn't see much of him growing up. He was a hard worker, almost to his detriment, with little time for anything else. He outright refused to retire and worked his fields like a madman up until his death about two weeks ago. Even when his wife had passed several years back, he didn't seem to slow down. He was cut from a different cloth, and he seemed happiest when he was working. Or maybe he just never knew how to do anything else. As you can probably tell, we weren't exactly close. No one in the family was. My mother is his daughter, and she said she can count on one hand how many times she's spoken to him in the last year. His passing was unexpected, and I left my mother and my two uncles in a bit of an awkward spot. The three of them had inherited his land, all 62 acres of it, as was the desire expressed in my grandfather's will. The three of them are also not farmers and not even close, so naturally they're looking to sell. There seems to be a few interested parties as well, but before that my mother expressed her wishes to collect anything of sentimental value. Of course, she was far too busy to do that herself, and so the duty fell on me and my older brother, Derek. Our cousin Brayden also agreed to help out, and so the three of us set a date in our calendars. Derek and I rented a U-Haul and loaded up to drive the eight-hour trip out to our grandpa's property. And Brayden was there by the time that we had arrived, greeting us with a smile. A few playful insults and a 30 rack of coors. The three of us stood around, slamming a few beers and catching up for a little while. It had been a while since I had last seen Brayden, and it was good to catch up. As we casually chatted, I first caught a glance of the rolling fields around us. Behind the house was a vast expanse of collapsed corn stalks ensnared in row formation. Our grandpa had just finished the season's harvest a few days before he had croaked, and what was left was mostly barren fields. To the left, there was a grove which comprised the southwestern corner of the property, maybe 20 acres of trees with a small pond hidden somewhere within. It was designated as a wetlands ecosystem and so my grandpa, much to his chagrin, was never allowed to bulldoze it. Instead, it became an area which my uncles and mom loved growing up. My uncles used to tell me how they had spent pretty much all of their free time out in those woods, and my mom echoed the same sentiments. The shattered remnants of a long-abandoned treehouse from their youth still clung to a trio of trees. The wood splintered and mostly rotted away, a rope ladder still dangled from its entry, swaying gently in the breeze. 
the three of us gazed upon it fondly, reminiscing on the more carefree memories of our youth. We spread out throughout the thicket, scouring the reeds and overgrown brush to try and salvage anything of potential importance. There wasn't much out there upon first glance, and we soon got lost deep within the grove. Sometime later, we had reached the edge of the pond, still without finding much of the familial or monetary value. What the heck? Hey guys, come look at this. Derek suddenly called out from further in the grove. Brayden and I joined him a moment later. We found him staring down curiously at a panel on the ground. It was wooden and heavily degraded. It creaked loudly as Derek pressed his foot down on it, and the cracks within it revealed an open area beneath. Derek glanced to us with an inquisitive glance. You guys remember this being here. Both Brayden and I shook our heads. Nope. I guess Grandpa kept a few secrets out here after all, Brayden replied. What do you think's down there? I asked him. Maybe a wine cellar, or maybe Grandpa's secret stash. Brayden replied with a chuckle. I coughed and tried stifling a chuckle. Yeah, thanks for that image, I replied, causing Brayden to laugh even harder. And Derek, on the other hand, didn't say anything. He just knelt down to the wood and tried peeking beneath it. He stayed quiet for a second and then pulled himself back up. There's something down there. He began walking away without another word. What is it? Brayden asked. I don't know, it looks like a tunnel or something. Brayden and I traded a look and I knelt to the panel to see for myself. It was dark and I couldn't make much out, but there was clearly a passageway of some kind. Brayden knelt to get a look for himself and Derek returned with a large pry bar. He dug it into the dirt beside the latch and began pressing the other end down. The wood splintered and gave way in a few seconds. The rusted hinges had snapped right off, and the rotted wooden hull just splintered apart. And Derek pushed it to the broken pieces out of the way, and the drab lighting pierced down into the chamber below. Well, you mangled it, I said, jeering Derek. He just shot me a skull and then approached the now open hatch. He pulled out his phone and flicked on the flashlight as the three of us peered down. Trails of dust flickered in the faux lighting, slightly revealing the passage underneath and the rusted ladder which descended into it. It was pretty bare-boned, appearing only as a dirt tunnel with no real description beyond that. We could only see maybe 20 feet of it before it disappeared behind the curve of the ground. Obviously, Grandpa had never made any mention of its existence, at least to us. I don't think he ever told anybody about it, actually. You think it'll hold? Derek asked, shining his light on the flashlight. Well, there's one way to find out. Brayden replied, polishing off the remainder of his beer. He then approached and reached out to the ladder and jiggling it around. Clearly, it wasn't the most robust ladder out there, but it seemed sturdy enough. Brayden swiveled around, placing his foot gingerly on the first rung with a pensive expression. Dude, don't worry if you fall, I'll take care of your girlfriend. I jeered at Brayden, giving him a wink. He replied only with a chuckle and an erect middle finger before putting his full weight on the ladder. It jiggled but held. So Brayden took another step down. 
In all honesty, it was only like 15 feet down, so even if it would have broken, he probably would have been fine. Brayden reached the bottom a moment later, coughing and glancing around. He turned on the flashlight on his phone and shined it further down the corridor. What do you see? Derek asked. Brayden suddenly paused, and he tensed up like a deer in headlights. Oh crap. What is it? I asked. There's a car. What do you mean there's a car? Derek asked and Brayden scoffed. What do you mean what do I mean there's a car? It's a freaking car, dude. You know, four tires. It goes vroom vroom on the roads. Derek sighed. It looks like a Chevelle or something, Brayden added. Yeah, yeah, okay, smarty, look out. Derek then descended the ladder as well, and after he touched down, I followed behind. Once I had made it to the bottom, I saw it. Sure enough, there was an old car sitting derelict in the tunnel, its frame heavily rusted away, with missing tires, a cracked windshield, and rotted upholstery. It was actually an old Plymouth Barracuda, contrary to what Braden had surmised. Second gen, if I had to guess. As a car enthusiast, it hurt my heart a bit to see it in such a miserable condition. You hardly ever see Barracudas out on the roads anymore, but those that are out there are worth a pretty penny nowadays. I would have loved to have the opportunity to work on that beauty, and yet it was surrounded by dirt, alone and forgotten beneath Grandpa's property. It didn't make sense. I don't remember Grandpa having this, Brayden stated. Yeah, me neither. Why the heck is it down here and how? Derek replied. I too had never known Grandpa possessed such a beautiful car, and immediately began thinking of extraction techniques before I could fully contemplate that I saw behind me. It was little more than a pile of dirt, but it appeared to be some kind of orifice in the dirt, possibly another chamber. Maybe it was like a sinkhole that dropped it down here, Brayden asked Derek. The two of them spitballed theories as I knelt to the site behind the ladder. I brushed away some of the dirt and felt something hard on the tunnel wall behind it. I brushed more going higher on the wall as the loosed layer of dust began to fall away. It took only a second for what it was to emerge. Is that a door? Brayden took the words right out of my mouth. I backed up as the other two joined my side. Sure enough, a simple wooden door stood adjacent to us, no doubt concealing a separate passage. Derek approached it and turned the handle. I thought for sure that it'd be locked or wedged shut, but to all of our surprise, it simply opened right up, revealing another passage beyond. The three of us peered inside, but all we saw was an empty dirt tunnel leading away from the entry. Of course, we had to see what was down there, so the three of us followed it. The passage smelled of mildew and wet soil, and it winded further away in a serpentine path. And there wasn't much of interest beyond the car, just old wooden support columns and trash. I was more worried of the tunnel collapsing on us at any moment than I was of actually finding anything. A few minutes later, and just as we were about to turn back, the passage suddenly opened to a substantially larger chamber. There were a lot of crates, barrels, and cardboard boxes there, with zero indication of what they held. The three of us spread out and began rummaging through the stuff for anything of interest. 
Again, there wasn't much at least in what I searched, mostly just old tools, pieces of clothing, and other random items. Grandpa was always a bit of a pack rat, so it wasn't too surprising. Hey guys, Brayden's voice called from the other side of the room. I spun back and saw him holding out something interesting, a large saber. It looked like an old American Civil War era weapon, rusted over with faded engravings on the hilt. Brayden withdrew the blade from the hilt and contrary to the hilt itself, the blade was in pristine condition. Dude, I think this is actual gold. Brayden said, pointing to the hilt's engravings. No way, they'd be worth thousands. No way Grandpa would just leave it down here to rot. Derek replied and Brayden shrugged. I gotta go visit Pawn Stars, I guess. I had turned from them and continued venturing into the room by that point. The more we searched, the odder the items that we found were, and the harder it became to explain why Grandpa had them. A taxidermy moose head, an old school diving suit, an ancient musket, a scepter with an odd figurine and embedded rubies, an elongated metallic skull, a massive crystal chandelier and dozens of other odd items. Most of the stuff that we found could have been attributed to family heirlooms, I suppose, but it didn't stay that way. Hey guys, Braden called out once again. I turned back into my utter bewilderment. Braden was holding a large statue about four feet in height. The plastic statue was that of some red-haired, well-endowed anime girl, wearing schoolgirl attire and clutching a katana. That one was not so easy to explain. Yes, Grandpa was a man of culture, Braden joked, or a man of theft, Derek countered. I turned to him to find him expecting some large mechanical thing. It almost looked like a mannequin at first, but there were bunches of wires spewing from within it, along with cords and unlit LEDs. It looked like a cyborg from iRobot or something, but all broken apart. None of us really knew what to make of those items or really any of the things that we found down there. As far as we knew, Grandpa was never exactly a robotics enthusiast or a weeb. It made me question whether he even knew about that place at all. He had owned the property for nearly six decades, and I thought perhaps he had loaned the place out for storage. Still nothing I theorized made a ton of sense. Hey guys, come look at this. Derek called from the far end of the room. Brayden and I approached him, finding him standing in front of a door. This door, like many of the other items down there, also seemed rather out of place. It was metal like the type you would find on an office building. There was no indication where it led, but of course you know that we had to open it. Inside the dirt ground, it gave way to full concrete stairs and sheet metal walls. It was clear that someone had gone to great expense to furnish that area, but who and for what reason we didn't know. The staircase led downward, turning left after about ten steps. The next portion was the same, and that repeated five more times as the staircase spiraled down. Finally, we reached the bottom and found another door awaiting us. This one was different than the first though. The hall appeared heavily worn, like twisted and almost melted in some spots. There was a bunch of writing all over it as well, but it didn't appear to be in English. There was this odd sense that overwhelmed me then, part overwhelming dread and part deja vu. 
I also wanted to just turn back, but by that point, the mystery was far too powerful to ignore. Derek stepped forward and grabbed the handle, but I spoke up. Dude, wait. Derek and Brayden looked back at me with confused grimaces. I don't know if we should do this. Neither of them seemed to feel the same judging by their expressions. Why? Brayden asked. I don't know, just something doesn't feel right about this. I mean, do you guys feel it? Both of them glanced at each other, but neither of them seemed to feel the same. Come on, man, we gotta see what's in there. Don't you want to know too? Derek asked. Yeah, but I can't help but think that Grandpa never mentioned any of this for a reason. Clearly, neither Brayden nor Derek felt as apprehensive as I did, but I still couldn't shake the feeling. Derek went ahead and turned the handle. The worn door groaned and creaked, and scraped loudly against the uneven ground as he pushed it open. I don't know what I was expecting to see on the other side, but it definitely wasn't what we found. The chamber before us was much larger than I had anticipated, spreading upwards for dozens of feet. The ground was metallic, some sort of rusted iron that was partially hollow on certain spots. The walls were jagged, asymmetric and multicolored, as if they had been haphazardly stuck together by multiple unaffiliated architects. Parts of them jutted out in sharp points, while others curved inward, giving the appearance of having been subjected to severe heat. There were bits of writing in random places as well, numbers, words, and fragments of thoughts. The door is open. We found it. Reality is broken, but we have the pieces. Or among a few of the phrases that I spotted. It sent a few shivers down my spine and almost appeared like the clandestine ramblings of some madman dangling on the fringes of sanity. I wondered if this theorized madman could have been our grandpa. Guys, look at this, Derek called out. He was peering down on one of the holes in the floor, shining his phone light down below. Watch your step, he warned as I tiptoed over. As I grew nearer, I began to realize the floor that we were standing on was not a floor at all but more like an elevated platform judging from the space beneath. Sure enough, as I glanced through the hole, the chamber beneath our metallic pedestal plunged downward for what appeared like hundreds of feet. A spiral staircase clung to the walls, winding its way downward, leading past countless doors of all shapes and sizes, embedded in the walls along the path. I couldn't even see the bottom of it. And the longer that I looked, the more that I got that uncomfortable vertical feeling, like I was glancing off the top of a cliff or a tall building. The three of us just stared down there for a few moments, all of us seeming to be mutually confounded. You think Grandpa did all this? Brayden finally spoke up, but neither of us answered for a moment. Derek then looked at him. How? You would need an army to dig this out, and even then, it would have taken years, if not decades. Brayden shrugged. Well, I haven't seen him in years, so... Brayden shrugged as he spoke, but Derek didn't seem convinced, and frankly, neither was I. There was something about that place that I still can't explain the way that I want to. A foreboding, unwelcome feeling, like the things we were seeing weren't just the result of some eccentric old man with limitless resources. Derek rose up, seeming to catch sight of something. He neared the edge of the platform, 
and he moved some tarps aside, revealing a hatch. The staircase appeared to meet the platform on the other side, and Derek knelt to try and open it as Braden joined him. After he removed the rusted hinge, the deadbolt slid out and he opened it right up. The three of us stared at it for a moment, the stairs below almost seeming to beckon to us. None of us said a word, but the next thing I know, the three of us were descending the spiral staircase. At that point, it almost felt as though I was in a trance. I was no longer curious about this unexplained discovery. I was obsessed and I had to know the truth. A few moments later, and we had arrived at the first door on the path. Brayden tried opening it, only to find that there was no handle on the door. He pushed against it, but it didn't budge at all. The three of us exchanged perturbed glances. Derek peered over the railing for a moment and as I began second-guessing what we were doing. I don't think it's going to open, Brayden finally said. Well then why is it here? Why is any of this down here? Derek asked, more wondering aloud than expecting an actual answer. He continued staring downward and Brayden and I exchanged a glance. Derek then abruptly began walking further downward, and within moments he had reached the next door only a few steps further down. That one had a handle, but trying to open it proved just as futile as the first. Derek went on to the next, but got the same result and started towards the fourth. Suddenly, Derek slept, seeming to lose his footing on the rung. Luckily, he managed to grab a hold of the railing, as the step beneath him gave way, plummeting downward. Braden and I rushed to grab him as the broken step clanged loudly on its way down. It must have bounced off the walls and other parts of the stairs, close to a dozen times before it finally stopped, as it appeared to strike the bottom. But by that point, it had long since vanished into darkness. Derek stood back up and the three of us backed away as the echoes of metallic clanging slowly dwindled down. As my eyes glanced upward, something caught my attention on the underside of the platform. A distinctive set of lines and symbols reminiscent of a clock face. But the symbols were ones that I had never seen before and didn't recognize. And then from far below us, something clanged against metal once more. The three of us paused and averted our attention downward as another clang rang out. Even with our flashlights, we could barely see down in the canopy of darkness. The faint light was barely enough to illuminate something below. The vague form of something came into view and my heart began to race. Something's down there, Braden spoke to all of our utter disbelief. The sheer impossibility of these situations struck my mind, but I couldn't deny the person far below us, beginning to trudge up the stairs. It walked like a person would, but its form was hidden, obscured in shadow and shroud. Something was very wrong about it. Hey, who's down there? Braden called out. The thing below suddenly froze. The tension in that bizarre place became thick as syrup as we waited to see what it was doing. Slowly, its head tilted upward until stopping as it aimed directly at us. Its form was covered by some sort of tarp or shroud and its face remained unseen. I felt the sense of dread and mounted my gut like bricks. We should go. As soon as the words left Derek's mouth, a loud bang echoed from below us. The three of us adjusted our gaze, seeing one of the other doors below us beginning to tremble as the clangs reverberated again and again. 
Even further below and even more horrifying, the shrouded thing had now begun running up the spiral staircase. What the heck is that? Brayden asked as the other door crumbled. Something then shrieked from behind it, reaching out with a long, clawed hand. The door continued to give way as the shrouded entity grew nearer, and the three of us ran like crazy. We quickly scaled the ladder and slammed the latch behind us. As we reached the door we had entered from, an absolute calamity had emerged behind us. It sounded like the entire place was on the verge of collapsing, with other doors surrounding it like they were being forced open. Suddenly a siren began blaring all around us, so loud I had to clasp my ears to avoid going deaf. The three of us scrambled onward, back up the metal stairs and into the treasure room from earlier. Braden yelled something from up ahead, but with the absolute racket of the siren, I couldn't make it out. We just kept moving and back into the treasure room from earlier. We were nearing the tunnel that had let us in when something stopped us dead in our tracks. We all seemed to see it at the same time. There was someone up ahead blocking our path. The person that trudged towards us, clutching a rifle with a duffel bag draped over the shoulder. It then lifted a hand and the deafening siren fell silent. Who's there? Derek called out, but the person didn't respond. He then came into view of our light and thankfully proved to be just a man with a thick black beard, but he wasn't somebody that I recognized. Who the heck are you? Brayden asked. The man's dark eyes scanned each of us as he clutched his rifle. An immense sound then thundered behind us, sounding eerily like that of an incensed roar from some colossal beast. The black-haired man's eyes went wide. You broke the seal. He all but whispered the words as the calamity grew behind us. You idiots, get out of here. If I don't come back, I torch this place. He trudged past us without another word aiming his rifle down the corridor that we had just come from. The three of us just ran and the sounds of gunfire serenaded our escape. We were back at the entry ladder only a minute or two later and without hesitation back on the surface. What the heck was all that? What's going on? Brayden asked between labored breathing, but neither I or Derek had an answer. Things had suddenly fallen eerily quiet. We waited there for maybe 20 minutes for that guy to return, but he never did. Brayden wanted to take his advice and destroy that place, but I didn't even know how we would do that if we wanted to. It's not like any of us had dynamite on hand. Grandpa's house seemed in a state of disarray in the distance, like more so than it had when we had arrived. I assumed that those things below us had something to do with it, but even that explanation had problems. In the end... We had just gathered our stuff and got the heck out of there. That decision has since proved to be the worst and best option. Derek and I rode in silence for a long time on the drive home, but eventually I dialed my mother figuring that I needed to inform her of what had happened. She answered and we conversed nonchalantly for a minute or two as she told me about her spending the weekend out of town at a retreat with some of her friends. But her mother's intuition eventually kicked in and she asked me if I was okay and what I was doing. Well, Mom, we're still out of Grandpa's property, and... I trailed off, glancing to Derek for clues. Your Grandpa, Grandpa Hayes, 
Her response kind of annoyed me. No, your father, mom, remember? We're out at his property and something happened. She remained silent on the other end for what felt like minutes. Why are you? How did you find it? My annoyance grew with that. Mom, you told us to go out there after he passed, remember? Mom stammered on the other end of the line, clearly caught completely off guard somehow like the two of us were speaking different languages. Son, where are you? Are you safe? You're kind of scaring me. Can you come home? Yes, Mom, we're all fine. We're on our way home now. Do you not remember what happened with Grandpa? Honey, I don't know where this is suddenly coming from or how to tell you this, but your grandpa's been dead for almost 20 years. My heart just basically sunk into my chest, and I didn't even know how to process those words. There was an accident back at his farm. He got injured somehow and they found him in his kitchen. The property was sold and not long after, sweetheart. I'm sorry, I thought you knew. I just remained silent for a moment as Derek asked me what was going on. I'll call you back. Derek asked me what was wrong, but I didn't even know what to tell him. Nothing about what I had just heard made sense. I told him what Mom had told me and the two of us just bemused our confounded mutual malaise with the rest of the ride home. Over the next few days, he and I, along with Brayden, attempted to figure out what the heck had happened. After meeting with my mom, she confirmed that our grandfather had passed away in mid-2002. She even showed us the death certificate and the report which listed his cause of death as blood loss via wound inflicted by unknown object. That alone was shocking enough, but when mom pulled out an old photo of him, I nearly crapped myself. His thick black hair and beard was oddly more familiar than it should have been. He was undeniably the man we had seen the day that we went into the tunnels. Brayden raised the idea that this was the Mandela effect, or that we had slipped into an alternate dimension. The three of us have been scouring the internet to see whether we can confirm that, but as of yet we haven't found anything out of the ordinary or different than we remember. Derek has said that we should go back to that property, but I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Not only because the land has now been sold to someone, but also just because of everything that's happened. Grandpa's cryptic words just keep echoing in my mind along with the words scrawled on the walls there. I think that place, whatever it was, was a sort of bridge either between different places or times or both. I think maybe all those different items in that treasure room were taken from various points in time. Maybe those doors were some kind of portals, and Grandpa used them to collect or steal things. Maybe those things we saw came through after we broke the seal, as he had said. I just hope whatever those things were, that Grandpa was able to seal them back down there. Because if not, there's no telling where they could be now. Something evil lives in the sewers beneath Cold Lake. Please respect your urban legends. Written by Young Seti. Gross, it smells like crap in here, man. Calvin spoke. His voice carried down the seemingly unending tunnel, echoing far past the point our cell phone lights faded. That's because there's probably crap in here. Terrence started with a mischievous grin, 
nudging Cal with his shoulder. Old sewage and rancid had drugged out bum crap. Cal dry heaved. Gross, man, I interjected. Please stop before he pukes. Terrence chuckled, slapping Calvin on the back and stepping away, taking a few steps down the opposite end of the tunnel. Calvin shuddered, glancing around the surroundings uneasily. Cal screwed his face in what seemed like a near-permanent look of disgust, eyes darting about and frowning as though he wanted to crawl out of his very skin from discomfort. It's always funny, Calvin being the tallest of us, how quick to fright he always was. Cal was a massive kid, just under 6'2 and hefty, with a build for football though he always had lacked the interest. He was something of a frightful giant. I couldn't blame him at this instant. However, we had certainly hung out in more congenial settings than the current. One of the many tunnels in a maze of interconnected defunct sewer drains, running under the old section of town in our community. The idea had been Terrence's, both during one of our smoke sessions in the treehouses in Calvin's backyard. Our conversation had moved from school to girls before somehow landing on the topic of some of our small town's local legends. Eventually, the conversation had turned to, in particular, the story that we had all grown up with since middle school and every kid who had grown up in our town knew some variation of it by heart. The tale of The Cold Lake Three. It was one of those local legends, but of more recent years. The sort of intoxicating blend of verifiable events and supernatural conjecture sure to leave a footprint in the culture of any quiet town. The story has different versions and endings depending on who told it to you, but the basic details were always about the same. Nine years ago, three older kids had disappeared. This part was probably genuine. They were Katie Waller, Ben Wilkins, and Theodore Foster, or the Cold Lake Three, as local news had dubbed them, students from the very high school that I now attended. I was in elementary school when it had happened, and for that year, it was practically all anybody could talk about. It had been the most significant thing to happen to Cold Lake and the surrounding county in some time. I recall even in elementary having assemblies about the tragedy and calling for vigilance until the police knew more. As time had passed, theories developed, ranging from the idea that the three were friends and had plotted to leave town altogether, to whispers of a murderer in Cold Lake. As far as anyone knew, nothing ever came of the case, and when a year had passed without so much as a body, it seemed that most media interest had waned. It was around this point that the stories began, I had first heard it at my first middle school party. Dave Christie's birthday party and gathered around a bonfire, Terrence along with me. We had all gathered around the fire pit in Dave's backyard, party hats strapped tight, and the high of sugar coursing through our veins beginning to fade, when his older brother Brent had gathered us all together with the promise of a story, regarding the one topic that everybody in town knew claiming to know a side of it that he insisted the grown-ups wouldn't tell us. First, he began, peering around the gathering of middle schoolers. Who here knows about the CL3? Hands shot up, and sounds of recognition spread through the group. Even at our young age, we had all heard of the three's disappearance. 
Curfews and allowances for going outside to play became much more restrictive during that time. Our parents often wielded the threat of ending up like the three as a cudgel to dissuade disobedience, wandering too far, staying out too late, the like. What few of us knew, however, the veil of childhood naivety and adult secrecy keeping it from our ears, they were the stories. These were the tales from some of those tasked with searching for the three, and the whisperings that would trickle out from Old Town following the events. Brent smiled, eyes gleaming with a mischievous look. Well then, which of you little dorks have heard about the tunnels? None of us raised our hands at the question, unsure glances passing between my peers and me. He snorted, a forest a snort of sound scoffing at us. Then you don't know anything. Your parents probably don't want you guys getting scared, and the police don't want to admit that they're clueless. But when you get older, you hear things. He's smart. You guys want to know the truth. The fire crackled as if on cue, making a few of us jump. A few kids stood and laughed, reaching their limit on scary for the night. And after the initial surprise, the rest of us nodded. Those kids didn't run away. Theo, Ben, and Katie. People at school knew them and yeah. They were weirdos, but not like that. My eyes widened as I began to process what he was saying. You went to school with the Cold Lake Three? I gasped. He nodded. Duh, I'm only a sophomore. It was last year. The event had seemed so massive that I had almost forgotten it was that recent and so close to home. I almost certainly knew people who had known the Three. They were loners, except with each other. I think Katie and Ben were dating, and Theo was Ben's best and only other friend, so they were almost always together. My dad said that Theo Foster killed Ben and Katie because he was jealous. A heavy set boy a few spots away from me chimed in. Yeah, your dad's a moron. Theo passed out in biology at the idea of dissecting a frog. No, they didn't kill each other or run away, he sighed. Eyes narrowing as if recalling something that had bothered him. Then what happened? Dave asked. The tunnels, he said. Voice low and ominous over the hiss of a crackling fire. They, they started hanging out in these tunnels under the old part of town. There's an old sewer system under old town. They never finished it and no one knows why. But they sealed it off and decided to build the current system that we have now instead. I couldn't see where the story was going, but I felt riveted. It felt as though Brent was letting us in on a secret, the true depths of which I doubt he even knew, and which I wouldn't find out until my nightmare beneath the city. Well, Ben and Theo got bored one afternoon, wandering Old Town and smoking as they always did, and I guess they found one of the maintenance hatches and broke in. As he spoke, recognition bloomed. I had heard of the old sewer line, years before from my grandfather. He had been well past his best days, dementia wreaking its havoc on his mind, but he always seemed to recall one warning. Stay away from the manholes in the old town, Darnell. He would say, always using my father's name instead. Ain't nothing good in this town, and even less beneath our feet. As a child, his warning seemed merely the ramblings of a fading mine, 
but sitting in that backyard, I felt a twinge of excitement as I began to connect the two. Brent continued. They found a whole crap ton of tunnels down there, some massive. There's never stuff to do in this town, and before long, it became their own personal hangout. He took a sip from the beer that he had stolen out of his dad's fridge, a knowing look appearing on his face as he seemed to dwell on some uneasy thought. It was weird, but they were kind of weird loner kids to the fact that they took to loitering in sewers, it, it made sense. Nobody thought anything of it until they started telling these, well, stories. It was Theo first. He swore that something was living down there, that upon wandering the sewers, he had found a passageway into a part of the underground that was different. Another swig in that troubled look had deepened. Different how? I hardly realized that I was speaking until I had asked the question. He frowned a bit. It was much too big, he started, and too old. I don't know how he knows, but he said the tunnels that he found were much too old to be built any time recently. I guess he started getting curious, he said. Heading in alone in one night, he found something or it found him. A log popped in the fire, making my heart lurch with a sudden fear. Something chased him out, he swore. He never saw it in the darkness of that old sewer, but he had heard it. Something big and fast and hungry told everybody who would listen. He shrugged. No clue why he went back and why any of them did. Maybe he wanted to prove a point. But the next time any of us saw the three of them, it was on that day after school heading for Old Town. So what happened? Another kid asked. What do you think? Brent snorted in response. I know what the adults are saying, and I also know that ever since the three, they've tried to keep the old sewer entrances locked up tight. Police have chased off a few kids trying to explore down there, for all the good that it's doing. Why would they do that if they thought those kids just ran away? None of us had an answer, and I suspect all felt much too frightened in the ominous dark of the night to say anything. It's cause there's something going on down there in that old sewer. Something the people in charge know about and are freaking terrified of. And are trying their best to keep it hidden. He paused, peering around the fire at us with a devilish grin as if to let the fear settle in. There are monsters beneath this town, kiddos. Try not to get caught. That was our first introduction to the idea of the sewers, and it wouldn't be the last. As insane as it might sound given what we were told, and the story that most kids believed, the disappearances became a sort of an urban legend. With that status, the sewers became a spot for local teenager daredevils or fans of the supernatural to test their mettle. It was a badge of honor to return with your own creepy story of odd sounds chasing you from the darkness, or sightings of the impossible that only the bravest of us had received. While most of these stories were surely exaggerated, or faked altogether by attention-seeking kids, some stood out in their consistency. With youth comes a strange sense of invincibility, and a curious need to peer into the darkness. And so years after that night, I now found myself and my two best friends roaming those very same tunnels in search of our own story. 
and we would get so much more than we had bargained for. It had been Terence's idea, as these things so often were, a suggestion made over a joint following a horror movie marathon. The anniversary of the disappearance of the Cold Lake Three had recently passed, and as usual, with it came a resurgence in stories and rumors about what had happened to them, the most popular of which amongst our age range, involving the theory that there was something more to the tunnels beneath the city. It had led to a spate of self-styled daredevils and thrill-seekers amongst our high school, making it a point to venture into the sewers in search of a something. Though most returned with little more than tales of vague, creepy sounds, there were the few who claimed to have seen them. Kyle Brock swore that he saw something racing towards him in the water one week, when he had been spray-painting the walls of the main line, and Shelley Anders refused to ever return to the sewers, after insisting she had seen a face in some of the grey water. And Terrence, however, was only encouraged by these tales, always one to push the envelope, and with more than a passing interest in stories of spooks and ghouls, the recent resurgence of the myth was a source of much excitement for him. Before long, he had convinced the two of us to venture into the sewers with him in search of local legends. It hadn't taken much convincing on my part. I had been to a few raves in the sewers before, even hung out on the main lines before, and while they were pretty gross, I had never found them quite so frightening. Granted, I was never alone, and I'd be lying if I claimed the miss that didn't intrigue me as well. The idea that we might be Artan's excuse for frontiersmen the first of our class and maybe ever in ages, to venture into some long-forgotten part of the little world constructed underground was exciting. And Calvin was a different story, ever the cautious one and a bit of a germaphobe at that. He had little interest in hanging out in a supposedly haunted sewer system. Unfortunately for him, we're kind of each other's only other friends, and anybody who remembers what those days were like knows the only thing worse than being scared at that age is having your friends leave you behind while they go off to do anything without you. So, he was right alongside us, face a permanent mask of disgust and unease as we moved through the tunnel. Look, can we just go back to my house or something? Calvin groaned. I rolled my eyes a bit, though I couldn't begrudge his unease. The atmosphere down there was strange. The air was thick with a dank wet smell that reminded me of the year my basement had flooded, along with the faint but putrid scent of lingering waste. The tunnel's construction was such that it swallowed anything more than a yard ahead in the murky darkness, from which the distant sounds of running water and the grating drip of condensation on the damp pavement echoed. I could almost see how it was enough to make the overactive imagination conjure images of figures stalking through the darkness ahead. I shuddered despite myself. It stinks down here, and I don't even care about these stupid mess, especially not enough to want to hang out in these creepy old sewers. Terrence afraid to cough. Baby, he muttered in between, prompting Calvin to slug him on the arm. Uh, come on, guys, I scoffed. Argue when we get to a point that we can stand up straight. We had entered the tunnels through a massive opening on the outskirts of town, in a ditch beside the now dry bed of a stream. I was unfamiliar with the entrance, 
as most people usually just entered through one of the maintenance entrances, but Terrence had other ideas. Having heard about the entrance from a friend who claimed it led to an unexplored portion of the sewers, Terrence decided then and there that it would be our mission to be the first to venture the length of the new entrance. The opening was a concrete pipe, jutting from the side of a ditch where a stream had once run, and space no less than five feet wide on all sides, in which only one could see so far into the inky blackness. We had been walking for a little over five minutes, heads crouched low to avoid brushing up against the ceiling, which bore a permanent flaky layer of brown that we all chose to accept as rust. On the way, we had passed a diverging path on the tunnels, disappearing off somewhere to the right, and debated using it but decided to remain on the straight path forward. We moved in search of an opening into one of the main lines, which was where people usually chose to dwell down here for their size and adequate standing room. The main lines were the largest of the tunnels, massive cavernous pathways of nearly 20 feet in diameter, with still rivers of murky gray water, five feet across, separating the walkways on either side. Guys, do we even know how long this tunnel is? How long are we going to walk? What if we don't find it? The steady undertone of panic in Cal's voice grew less subtle as he spoke, his questions echoing up and down the tunnel. We kept moving forward, though he had slowed to match Cal's dwindling pace. Cal, relax, man, Terrence spoke, his tone less teasing but still playful. Bill Marsh told me about this path. It's like a five-minute walk, then we should see another opening. Crawl through there, and I'd bet we're never-before-seen parts of the main line. Bet. I could have taken note of the lack of certainty in his statement, but my back was sore and I was tired. Along with my growing discomfort, my head felt too muddled for me to notice. Okay, and then what? We just walk around until what? We hear something creepy and get to run back and tell everyone. He looked unconvinced. Terrence scoffed. I mean, yeah, we're not here for a tour of sewage history. I chuckled, offering Cal an apologetic shrug as he shot me a look. Listen, man, if you're too scared and are going to complain the whole time, just head on back. You know the way out. Kevin and I will meet you back at the house. He nodded off down the tunnel towards the entrance that we had used. But we've heard these stories since we were kids. Kevin and I are going to go check it out. Calvin considered the offer looking between us to see if either would relent, and then head back down the tunnel. God, how I now regret not stepping in and agreeing with them. Hey, I jumped in. We'll be in and out. If nothing happens, heck, if something does happen, we'll dip. I could see his reluctance or resistance rather waning. On Monday, we can tell everyone at lunch how we braved these spooky sewers under Old Town. Michelle might be impressed. Screw you, he said with a tense laugh. Let's go. And Terrence whooped, clapping him on the shoulder. I shot him a smile and we continued forward. As we moved deeper into the tunnel, it became obvious that we were growing closer to some body of water as almost half an inch of water had begun to pool at her feet. In the darkness ahead, the hiss of running water grew louder, echoing from all around us off of the dome-like walls. 
The space grew tighter the farther that we moved, until the three of us were moving in a line. We should be pretty close, Terence muttered, the exertion of crouching for so long present in his voice. Bill said it looked like a real tight squeeze close to the entrance. Keep your lights pointed forward, and we should see it soon. Sad, I asked, straining from exertion. He hasn't used the tunnel before. Terrence sighed, and I could make out a nod. No, he doesn't come down here much anymore, and when he does, it stick graffiti up one of the main entrances. He said he found this by accident, and that was as far as he wanted to go. I didn't reply, letting the response sit for a moment, and Terrence quickly spoke as if to dismiss any concerns. It'll be fine, the whole thing connects anyways, and the town wasn't even a third of the way done when construction had stopped, so it's not that big of a place. I scoffed but grunted my affirmation, far too strained to argue verbally as the muscles in my back and thighs began to burn in protest of our continued crouching. The sound of running water grew to fill the tunnel and before long, it had soaked through the soles of our shoes as we had moved forward. Terrence taking point, with myself and Calvin in a tight row behind him. As we moved, the distinct sounds of us moving through the water became our sole background noise, a repeating rhythm created by our almost regimented push forward. Along with the distant rush, it was the only sound to be heard in the tightening cavern, and it became something of an absent-minded game to time my steps with everyone else. After almost five and a half minutes of walking, my mind became hardly aware of the noise as anything other than ambience anymore. I think that's why when it first began, I hardly noticed the change. It was the already anxious Calvin that realized at first, a significant detail that the two of us were somehow missing. Having spoken after the fact, the few times we've ever felt comfortable recounting the experience with one another, I know now that Cal had become aware long before he had spoken. That stuck at the rear with walls to either side of him, he realized that if he was hearing what he thought he was hearing, our best bet was to push forward. I felt a firm hand grip my shoulder and turned as best as I could in the tight space to find Calvin staring back at me. His face illuminated in the harsh light of his phone, eyes wide with a look of silent horror. He moved his mouth, though nothing came out, and for a moment confusion washed through me before I realized what was going on. He was mouthing something, a word. Listen. My face screwed, but I peeked my ears, stepping with measured care to hear whatever he was referring to. All we could hear were the sounds of our own feet pushing through the inches of water beneath us, three distinct steps forward. Our eyes were just as wide as a warm, static burst flash of shock rippled through my very molecules. I'd heard it as clear as day from somewhere behind Calvin. Something else was moving through the tunnel behind us. I swallowed and for a moment, the two of us just looked between one another, asking the same silent question, our looks answer enough. Did you hear that? We knew that we both had. For the first time since we had entered the sewers, I felt much like Calvin as my guts twisted into uneasy knots. I peered past Kelvin, hoping to catch sight of some other teenagers making their way down the same tunnel, 
but to my disappointment and growing unease, we had turned several corners since entering, and little to no light reached the long stretch behind us. Still, the darkness that now seemed to mass behind us felt unnatural, almost oppressive, and from within it echoed still, the unmistakable sound of someone drawing closer as they splashed through the water. It was clear that whoever was behind us cared little if we had heard their approach. I considered saying something, alerting Terence perhaps, and by the looks of it, Calvin was too, but still I shook my head. The echo in the tunnel all but ensured whoever was behind us would hear, a thought that made my guts not with a cold unease. Were it not for the rush of water somewhere close ahead, now so loud it began to overcome even the sound of our own footsteps, our guest's approach surely would have echoed throughout the entire tunnel. Here it is, Terrence spoke. I pointed my flashlight forward with his, revealing the small round opening in the stone wall ahead. On the other side, water roared in the tunnel below. Rails lining the path were walking visibly on the other side, but there was something strange about it. The light shone and faded as it stretched past the railing, and still it only found darkness. The entrance into the main line was a tight squeeze, almost a concrete porthole to the other side. Welcome boys to the underground. Terrence spoke, beaming back at us, the light of his phone stretching odd shadows across his face. Yeah, amazing, just go. The urgency in Calvin's voice was almost panicked. Though unaware of the fourth person in the tunnel, Terrence smirked. Dismissing it as more of Calvin's usual anxiety. He turned, climbing into the tight tunnel and shuffling out onto the other side, beckoning us to follow. I did next. The tube smelled of rust and still water, and I felt my heart race with the anxiety of being in a space so tight, only to soar as Terrence had pulled me to the other side. I caught my balance with my hand lowering myself out of the tube and onto the concrete walking path on our side. As I rose to my feet, I got a better look at the chamber that served as home to what was practically a man-made river. I felt my mind waver, a rising sense of tingling unease swelling as it took in the sheer scope of the space in which I found myself. Whoa, I breathed, the word seeming to travel down either end of the corridor. Yup. Terence responded, Welcome to the underworld. The tunnel was massive in a way I could hardly fathom being possible just beneath our feet. Somehow the ceiling and walls extended out at all sides, until I was certain that a passenger plane could have fit through. Guys, I don't know if I want to try this, it's going to be a tight fit. Cal's pleading tone came through the tunnel. Terence turned back with a groan. You'll be fine, man. Trust me, I'll pull you through. Calvin sighed, muttering to himself. As I shone my light around, trying to get a sense of the space that I had entered, I could make out graffiti covering the walls, in various stages of wear and terror, all reading eerily similar or ominous messages. We never should have opened these tunnels. God forgive us. Abandoned all hope. And for whatever reason, the one that stuck with me the most scratched into the wall just above the tunnel that we had entered through. If you're here, it's already too late. 
I stifled a chill, but it did little to stop the rapidly growing sense of wrongness the air seemed thick with. I pointed the light over the railing, aiming it into the murky gray waters beneath. I could make out nothing, not, not even the depth in the stream of filth, and felt oddly an odd twist of panic in my gut as I stared into it, as though something might be lurking just beneath the surface. I peered around the tunnel some more, illuminating more graffiti and impromptu art, before the light fell on something that made me stop. At the roof of the tunnel on opposing sides sat what appeared to be valves, closed with iron lids. Between them was a warning, left in large yellow letters and accompanied by an ominous illustration. I can describe only as the outline of a man, with a facsimile of the Grim Reaper lurking over his shoulder. What a red sent a chill down my spine. Warning, hostile non-human entity, unauthorized personnel leave immediately or risk death. My heartbeat picked up and I tried to force a nervous chuckle though I failed. Surely it had to have been a prank of some sort, or some weird graffiti left behind by a prior visitor meant to freak us out. Yet that didn't feel right. The warning looked real and official despite as insane as it had sounded. Non-human entity, I shuddered. I had not really expected our journey to turn up anything, and things were beginning to feel much too strange for me. My mind running with those vague stories of what had happened to the cold like three. Cal, what are you doing, man? Let's go. Terrence's voice pierced my sinking train of thought. I turned to face him in the tunnel that Calvin should have already climbed through, yet with Terrence's light shining on it, I could see that it was empty. I stepped closer, that strange sinking feeling only growing worse. As I approached, I kneeled over and could see Calvin standing on the other side of the tunnel. He was trying to stand stock still, his back towards us, but his body shook uncontrollably. Cal, I called. Guys, he spoke the word like a plea. His voice was wavering with a sort of terror that I had never heard in real life before, palpable and infectious. There's something in here with me. My heart simultaneously plummeted and began to raise painfully as I recalled the footsteps that we had heard in the tunnel behind us. Dread washed over me as I realized something else about what he had said. Something. Suddenly the story of the Cold Lake Three felt horrifyingly relevant. What are you talking about? Terrence called, sounding slightly irritated. Dude, stop freaking out and come. Guys, guys, it's coming around the corner. It's... His voice stopped for a moment. When he spoke next, it was a question. His words tinged with palpable dread. Oh God, what is that? The sound of movement was unmistakable now. Loud and growing louder each second, as it echoed from amidst the darkness of the tunnel. Calvin stood stock still, tension clear in his body under the harsh cell phone light. The noise that came next I still hear to my nightmares. It was a cross between a moan and a shriek, wet, piercing, and wholly unnatural. It was as though the floodgates had opened and dread had flooded through me, filling my body and making my skin run hot. Terrence jumped back and away from the hole that we had climbed through, standing stiffly. Guys, help me please, it's coming. 
Calvin's horrified shrieks pierced my very being, curdling my blood. My Kadoo commotion and in moments saw the top of his head as he tried to squirm through the pipe that we used to enter. His eyes were wide and bulging with panic, his face pale and glistening with a sheen of sweat as he tried to scoot forward. On the other end of the pipe, somewhere behind him, that god-awful sound towed through the air again, pushing Calvin to move even more frantically until he wasn't moving forward at all. He grunted with exertion, one arm out, the other stuck at his side, as he tried to pull himself free and into the chamber that we were in, but to no avail. Pull me out, he screamed. I'm stuck, it's getting closer. Terrence and I both hurried to either side of the opening, with him grabbing the arm flailing for purchase, and myself gripping him by the collar of his jacket. From just behind him in the tunnel we had just been, a noise like a cross between a choking gurgle and discordant laughter echoed from far too close. It was nearly on him. I tugged, heat blooming through my face and my muscles screaming with exertion. Terrence doing much the same and still. Calvin seemed fixed in place despite his and our frantic struggle. Please! Calvin's voice was shrill and raw to the extent that I couldn't imagine his throat wasn't practically bleeding. Terrence pulled, wide-eyed and sweating as he did, Calvin's own panic having spread through the both of us in mass. I timed my effort with his heart, pounding in my chest as we pulled once, twice, three times to no avail until on the fourth. Movement. Calvin slid forward just a bit, and I felt my heart roar. It would plummet immediately after. Our moment of respite was crushed, and all progress was erased as without warning. Calvin shot back into the tunnel with impossible force. No! Terrence cried, nearly hitting his head against the stone wall with force while I myself had barely avoided being pulled into the tunnel. The sound that came out of that tunnel was like a symphony to a nightmare. That horrendous gurgling paired with a strange sort of yipping bark that sounded almost like laughter, and Calvin's screams. No longer were they the shrieks of a man in a dire panic, but a wounded and dying animal fighting for its life. I had to fight the urge not to vomit, my head spinning under the steady flow of dread as though I might fall at any moment. Terrence cried out in surprise, stumbling away as a stomach-churning wet crunching echoed forth. With an unsteady hand, Shaking like a leaf in a hurricane, I raised my phone, aiming the light down the tunnel. My heart plummeted into the cold waters of dread rising in the pit within my chest. My vision shook as though my eyes were rejecting the sight before me. I stared through the tunnel, peering into a scene from a nightmare. Calvin was on his knees, a set of impossibly large, swollen hands holding him by his shoulders. They were covered in dozens of fat, wriggling digits emerging from all over, running up the rolls of its arms, digging into his clothing and flushing, kneading at him excitedly. The skin moved and wavered and it looked as though smaller fingers were trying to press their way to the surface. The thing's face was still obscured, reaching to the ceiling of the small tunnel that had almost filled entirely with its massive form, but it was clear that what I was looking at was not a human or at least it was no longer. It filled the tunnel nearly crushing Calvin to the wall with its mass, an immense being of bubbling flesh and grasping fingers. 
Calvin's screams filled the air. At this point, little more than background noise to the horror unfolding. Small, thin strips of flashlight tentacles gripped him angrily as it raised him closer. But please, Calvin whimpered, voice wavering with unrestrained emotion. The thing gurgled, its face, practically part of its torso, broke into a toothy smile, its impossibly wide mouth spreading to reveal rows of massive teeth. Two fish-like eyes like twin pools of oil peered back at us. Despite its features being something out of a nightmare, there were traces of something human within, most notably its expression, a smile that made my blood curdle dripping with malintent. Its mouth opened, spreading far wider than any jaw should. My heart fell into the pit of my stomach as I watched it raise my friend until its mouth encircled his head. He stared at us as best he could, eyes wide but devoid of hope. Go. Terrence muttered a curse, a voice shaking. Sorry, man, he muttered, the hurt in his words shared. We ran and the sound that followed us as we fled into the darkness ahead is one that I'll never forget. A scream of impossible pain disappearing immediately into a shrill gurgle and a wet crunch. Warm tears stung my eyes as we ran. I felt like a coward, yet any faint idea of returning was dashed by the sounds it made as it devoured him, horrific shrieks that echoed off of the walls as though it were all around us. The tunnel seemed to stretch on forever as we ran, and as these sounds of our friend's end began to fade, the imminent sense of doom gripped us again. We had no idea where we were going or if we were any nearer to an exit. From somewhere in the darkness behind us, far closer than it should have been, that thing roared. Semi knew that its feast was complete and that we were next. Terrence began to cry audibly as we both picked up the pace, his legs surely burning as my own were, hearts thrumming to the point of overexertion. Another roar closer this time. How freaking far does this thing go? I called my lungs on fire. I don't know, he called back. It killed Kelvin. Kelvin's dead and we're gonna die. As if in confirmation, its roar rang off of the stone walls again, growing louder over the rush of water. Our lights danced along the walls and floor as we ran nearly blind until I caught sight of something that, for the first time, was an ember of hope in this waking nightmare. There's a tunnel, Terrence, over here. I had nearly missed it as my light just barely crossed it as we ran, but by some stroke of luck or the blessing of whatever god might exist, I caught a glimpse of it. We stopped, something that felt against my every natural instinct, as the very ground shook beneath us under the steady approach of the thing from the sewers. It was another tunnel, not unlike the one we had made our way through before, just a bit wider. A realization that even in the horror of the moment, Struck my heart as it recalled Cal's final moments. Crap, dude, what if it doesn't lead outside? Terrence said, his tone now awfully similar to our lost friend. I swallowed. We have no other choice. That thing is going to catch us. It's this or... I trailed off. We both knew there was little time to decide. Before he could take a moment more to think, I was moving, crawling through the opening at a fevered pace and I could hear Terrence behind me in an instant. 
that thing approaching not far behind either of us. There was no way to hold the phone and make our way forward at a fast pace, so we sacrificed sight for speed and in doing so, moved forward in pitch black, potentially even deeper into the maze that apparently existed down here. We had been moving for what would have been almost a three minutes when, from the opening of the tunnel, there was a roar unlike any of those before. Raw with a strange animal sort of rage, it had found us. A sound like the rush of a train began from somewhere in the darkness behind us. Go, Terence cried. I needed no encouragement. We scurried through the tunnel like human rats in a maze. The threat of violent death bearing even closer with the sound of a freight train when... Light! I felt a surge of hope erupt forth in me, somehow pulling energy from reserves I didn't know that I had and pushing me forward. As the tunnel curved, I could see the source, and it was the exit. It was dimmer outside than before, and I could tell the sun had set a bit. But even that little bit of remaining light was a world of difference, and we moved knowing full well that our life depended on it. It's getting close. It keeps grabbing at my leg, man. Go. As the light grew closer, so did the creature. I could feel its warmth where I was, and the smell of rot clung thick. It was surely no more than a few feet behind of Terrans. As I reached the mouth of the tunnel, I took no liberty with Grace, throwing myself out with reckless abandon, sending myself tumbling down a small decline into a ditch in the forest floor. I took a second to gather myself dazed and with an odd pain in my right wrist, but it all faded as my mind returned to the moment. Terrence's face emerged from the tunnel, a mask of sheer terror a sheen of sweat making his hair cling to his forehead as he tried to throw himself forward much as I did. He careened through the air end. He stopped halfway before snapping back into the ground below. Terence's leg remained in the tunnel, gripped by one of the fleshy appendages, its skin tentacles all wrapping themselves around him. My vision seemed to shake. A familiar horror returning his images of Kelvin, raised into the beast's mouth, returned to mind. No. I ran forward, pulling myself up the small hill, and just as it began sliding back into the tunnel, and pulled with every bit of strength left to me. He moved forward just enough that his legs were fully out of the tunnel, though it still held him but only for a moment. Like something out of a movie, the skin on its arm began to sizzle. Smoke rising under the sunlight. The thing squealed like a stuck pig, pulling the appendage back into the tunnel. Its body seemed to shake and quiver until I realized that it was readjusting itself to face us. Somehow those massive dark eyes seemed to burn with anger, the look of a predator deprived of its meal. We stood there in awe and horror, and exhaustion until it disappeared back into the darkness with a parting hiss. After a few moments, the two of us broke down and darted home, both in tears. I don't know what I expected when we told folks what had happened. Of course, we'd have to tell them that Calvin was dead, but I hadn't had enough time to really think of consequences, as we had struggled to survive. But there were none, none that should follow the suspicious disappearance of a teenager anyways. We got a stern talking to about avoiding places that we shouldn't be and both of us were grounded after. I know my parents never fully trusted me, 
Calvin's parents never forgave us, and I couldn't blame them. His name was whispered all over town. Just like the three, they say. It seemed like already everyone knew, and yet no one had told us. I guess that's why I'm writing this, to tell you that bored kid growing up in a quiet town looking for adventure. Respect local legends, they exist for a reason. Otherwise, you're bound to become one. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you really enjoyed the stories that we provided. As always, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And don't forget, stay creepy.